Dr. Jackson, we've talked a bit about your research and your examination of the, the four kinds of elder abuse, elder financial exploitation, physical abuse, neglect by others, and hybrid financial exploitation, which you explained in our first podcast, and what, what interested you in looking at the risk factors associated with the particular kinds of elder abuse and how important that is so that our case plans, our intervention efforts, and our prevention efforts are rooted in what we know about risk factors for those discrete types of elder abuse. So now we, we kind of wanted to turn to the implications of this study and how the study would change how elder abuse cases are identified and looking ahead at those prevention and intervention efforts and how they're carried out. I, I would like to mention um, that I, I, another point that I think is really important is to think about um, our need to intervene with both victims and offenders. And, um, you know, some of these cases are, are easily resolved if, when the victims don't have an emotional attachment to the offenders. But a lot of the cases do involve very significant relationships. And, um, and so I think we need to be thinking about both the victims and offenders when we're thinking about intervening. But that is sometimes, uh, I will say, a tough sell. Um, not everybody thinks we should be responding to both victims and offenders. And I understand that position, but if we're going to effectively intervene in a, in a particular case, we need to think about all the people who were involved in it. We also need to be thinking about the intersection of mental health and substance abuse and elder abuse. A lot of the um, offenders have some significant issues. So one of the ways that we can think about responding to these kinds of cases is through the use of multidisciplinary teams. And um, they're popping up. They're, they're growing in prevalence to some extent, but um, they're not used as extensively as I'd like to see. This is a, a, a model where we can bring together community agencies, APS law enforcement, um, a number of different entities who can provide those services to both the victims and offenders. It seems like your work would have implications for data collection around elder abuse, too, that I could imagine that we would be able to create more detailed risk um, pictures. I just made that word up. Um, so that, and that how, how important would that be to be able to collect data on that for the future so that later we could paint a picture for, the, for practitioners in the future that this is what we know about these kinds of abusers, the abusers that do this kind of financial abuse, have these, have these characteristics. Right. I think it's really important. And, and so somebody who has that um, know, arsenal of information can walk into a situation and, you know, and they'll do their, uh, ask a few questions or learn some information about the offender. And those red flags can start going off um, if they know what the risk factors are, things they could be looking for. So I think it's really important. And states are, are starting to do that. But um, We've got a long ways to go there, too. So what's, what's next on the, on the horizon for you and uh, your research team? What are, what are some of the interesting things that you'd like to see happen next in the field of elder abuse, elder justice? To me, the, the, uh, what is lacking most right now is effective interventions. 
So how do we respond in these cases to keep our victims and, and even offenders, but the victims safe in these situations? And, um, and so it's my hope that the more we learn about these risk factors, and, and we also need to be learning about the you know, underlying causes of elder abuse, but that we can then develop interventions, um, again, separately for different types of abuse um, so that we can keep them. I mean, ultimately, our goal is to keep the victim safe, and, and so interventions are the, what is lacking right now. We also really promote the use of multidisciplinary teams, yeah. um, just like we would if we were talking about geriatric medicine. We would just say that medicine is helped by interacting with social work and nursing and pharmacology. And similarly, in elder abuse, if we leave it just to the social workers, what are we missing? If we left it just to law enforcement, what, what do we miss? And I think one of the things that's so interesting about your study, your work, is that you're just making it really, really clear that elder abuse is a complex, it's a complex phenomenon, and it requires a complex response. You know, that just makes it really clear that having more than one entity respond is useful if you have those resources at your disposal. Yeah, and so another aside, I am working on um, MDT stuff here. I've been in um, child advocacy centers in their world. Um, since the 90s, and so part of one of my projects here is um, thinking about how to encourage communities to use MDTs. And, and you know, I know you guys have the beautiful forensic center, which is lovely, but, you know, we want to make sure and let every community know that they can start an MDT. You don't have to have all the beautiful bells and whistles, but it's people getting together, building relationships, and talking about cases. Can you say a little bit about, given that, what would that mean for the people who are responding to these cases? Yeah, I think that what one of the implications of that is that a single person isn't going to be able to do this by themselves. And I've mentioned um, multidisciplinary teams, but um, you know, given the the complexity of these problems, it's going to require a number of different entities responding to these cases. And um, so building relationships through MDTs with community service, victim services, um, the, all the different entities that might be able to respond to a case of, of elder abuse. So, you know, we've got to move away from this idea where one person like APS or law enforcement goes in and solves a problem. I, I just think these cases require much, much more um, effort and resources than, than that model allows. So that, for me, um, um, one of the places that I go with that is that it also has implications for policy then as well, that the, the policies we have at the local level or the state level or at the federal level need to reflect the that the best way to handle these cases is to recognize their complexity and their longevity and somehow apply resources in a different way than we do right now. Um, so, yeah, I think you're absolutely, absolutely right. And one of the really frustrating things for both APS and um, people, other people in the field, is that they have these severe time limits. And, you know, I understand why they're there, but 
um, it's very difficult to intervene and resolve these cases in the 45 days or whatever it takes. So not only is it financial resources, which are clearly limited, but it's also other kinds of resources like the time and the number of caseworkers that are available to go out and, and see these cases. Um, and one of our other studies, we found that caseworkers who were able to go back to the house a number of different times, you know, and they were invited back, they weren't being obtrusive, intrusive, um, but that it took a number of visits to the victim's house to convince them or persuade them um, that something wrong was going on, maybe with their finances or with uh, one of their adult kids. But anyway, so again, this resource issue was a huge one. I like also that you that you brought to light this fact, and I don't think we know very much about this yet in our field, but that people who are abused in later life, that some percentage of them have been abused in their younger years, and what and, and so going back to the issue of polyvictimization, what impact does that have if, if folks have been abused in their early life? What, what does that say about how we need to intervene if this is the second or third time that this person has been abused, whether it's physically or financially or whatever? That case will, will need resources that perhaps another case won't. And knowing that at intake, learning, asking the right questions so we're getting at that information would then change the response to that, that person's case. Yeah, absolutely. And what we know now about trauma-informed care, we've got to start asking about things that have happened to victims in their earlier life. Um, absolutely. Well, it's really fascinating um, and just beginning, it feels to me like we're just beginning to scratch the surface of elder abuse. We, we've known, those of us who have been in it for a long time, know that it is not a monolithic field, that, it, 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 that these, the people's experience of elder abuse is really complex and multifaceted. And I just really appreciate the research, that your research is, is bringing that to light in a scientific way, not just an anecdotal way. And I hope that we can take your, the findings from your research and apply it um, for, our, for the intervention efforts on the ground with Adult Protective Services, with the Ombudsman, law enforcement, and also then have, our, have policies and funding streams that reflect that complexity and um, really apply resources to help victims. So thank you very much for your time. Thank you for your research. And it was great talking with you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. This podcast was produced by the National Center on Elder Abuse. For more information, visit us at www.ncea.aoa.gov. Search for our other podcasts through iTunes University or on YouTube. Our channel is NCEA at UCI. Thanks for joining us.